Hi, and welcome to season two of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. This episode is being released as we are once again celebrating Constitution Day. In episode one of season one, the women discussed how state constitutions could be quite different from state to state. We'll continue that theme as the justices discuss timely issues like redistricting after the recent census. This is just a great demonstration of how what your constitution says matters. We'll also check in with the lady justices about the most recent amendments and proposed amendments to the constitutions in their states. So their amendment is to make it harder to amend the constitution. Then stay tuned for the lightning round where the women reminisce about their first concert. My dad went days before with a folding chair to wait to buy tickets for us. That's coming up on this episode. Thanks for joining us. So welcome back to season two of Lady Justice, Women of the Court. For those of you who are listening for the first time, we are women justices on three different state Supreme Courts, and we co-host this podcast to talk about the importance of state courts and provide civic education concerning the judiciary in a format that is unique for justices, but we think necessary to reach the public in modern times. I'm Rhonda Wood, a justice on the Arkansas Supreme Court, and I'm joined by Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of the Michigan Supreme Court and Justice Beth Walker of the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals. Welcome back, Bridget and Beth. Thanks, Rhonda. We are excited to be back. I'm excited to see both of you and looking forward to all the conversations we'll get to have this season. Me too. Good morning. Uh, I guess morning is when we're taping, Rhonda and Bridget. Um, I've I've missed you a little bit this summer while we took a quick pause uh, getting ready for this season, so I'm super excited to be back. Likewise. Well, we're beginning the season like last year by celebrating Constitution Day, which is September 17th and celebrates the anniversary of the day the delegates to the U.S. Constitution Convention met for the last time to sign the document on September 17, 1787. But since we are state Supreme Court justices, our focus is on the role of states when it comes to both the U.S. Constitution and our individual state constitutions. So first I'd like to start, I guess we always like civic education. So we'll talk about the amendment process because the U.S. Constitution doesn't exist without our states. And it takes the states to ratify the amendments to the U.S. Constitution. And Article 5 specifies that there's four methods, actually, to um, ratify amendments to the United States Constitution. And it can be by a convention of states and then ratification of state conventions, which it's interesting when I was looking at this has never been used. Um, and then there also can be a proposal where there's, again, a con a convention of states and ratification by state legislatures, which again has never been used. And then there could be a proposal for an amendment by Congress and ratification by state conventions, which apparently has only been used once, which tells me state conventions are just not the way to go to amend the Constitution. Um, And then a proposal by Congress and ratification by state legislatures, um, which has been used um, all the other times. Um, the first 10 amendments we know are the Bill of Rights that were ratified together. And then the first amendment that our three states, uh, Michigan, West Virginia, and Arkansas voted to ratify was the 13th Amendment, um, which we know prohibited um, slavery. 
interesting little tidbit um, for you, Bridget, that Michigan was the first state um, to ratify the 21st Amendment <laughs> that re repealed prohibition. Michigan is fun, I'm telling you. You should come yeah, visit. Yeah, so um, apparently. <laughs> that, that's pure Michigan, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, they were like, they just jumped on board that immediately. But um, some states have rejected, um, which I um, did not realize that Arkansas actually voted to reject the 16th Amendment, which gave the federal government the power to tax income. Um, Arkansas was strongly opposed to that, but apparently we did later ratify it. Um, in season one, um, season one, episode one, we talked about how the process to amend our constitutions um, is quite different in our various states. But I'm curious, Beth, what was the most recent amendment to the West Virginia Constitution? Uh, well, this is a, uh, a very timely conversation. Earlier this year, our legislature um, approved three resolutions that will be put forward to the voters of West Virginia in the fall of 2022. So we're about a year away. And there, three is a lot, it seems to me, um, because our, um, our constitution has only been amended about 77 times, and most of that is for bonds. But real quick, those three amendments are first to allow the legislature more um, ability to exempt personal property that is used by businesses from certain taxes. That's pretty exciting, right? Um, the second is permitting uh, under state corporate law churches or religious denominations to incorporate, which is not currently permitted. And then finally, um, coming out of the events of 2018, there is a resolution to make it double clear that the court cannot interfere in impeachment proceedings that are brought by the legislature. Um, and back then, one of the justices who was impeached brought a case in court to get the impeachment impeachment proceedings blocked. The legislature didn't appreciate that. So now they are further amending the constitution to make it double clear that that is not permitted. So those three um, amendments uh, have not been approved yet, but will be considered by the voters in the fall of 2022 in West Virginia. That's really interesting. Um, and I don't know, so in Arkansas, um, we have the process where the legislature can refer um, amendments as well. Um, and we also have the process where the people can propose and petition um, and put a, a ballot initiative um, for, to amend the Constitution. And I don't know how it is in um, West Virginia or in Michigan, but it's quite um, contentious um, with our legislature. Our legislature also has, um, they had, I believe, 43 bills put forth to amend the Constitution our last session but they can only put three on the ballot. So 43 were filed, um, but then they have to whittle it down to three. Um, so only three go forward. Um, and one of the ones that passed was actually um, to raise the percent to pass, um, to amend the constitution to 60%, to actually make it harder for the voters to approve a constitutional amendment, which I think is is kind of interesting. Um, so their amendment is to make it harder to amend um, the Constitution. So we'll see how that works out. Um, but we're like you, um, our last two um, amendments in 2020, one of them was a sort of bond issue. And the other one was a term limit amendment. Um, and it limited the state legislative offices um, to 16 years um, term limit. So what about you, Bridget? 
we didn't have any in 2020, but in 2018, there were three amendments on the ballot and they all passed. Um, the first was whether to legalize the recreational use of marijuana. And that one passed by the closest margin, but it passed. So marijuana is now legal in Michigan. Recreational use of marijuana is legal in Michigan. Um, the second was to create an independent citizens redistricting commission to take redistricting away from the legislature and give it to an independent commission. And, and, and that passed. And the third was to support adding eight different voting policies to the constitution, including straight ticket voting, automatic voter registration, same day voter registration, and no excuse absentee voting. So significant overhaul of, um, of voting. And all three of those passed in 2018. So, and you do have straight ticket voting then in Michigan? We do now. You do the now. constitution says we do. Okay, <laughs> the constitution says we do not have that in Arkansas. We had that in West Virginia until just a few years ago when the control of the legislature switched from Democrat, which uh, it was Democrat controlled for about 70 years, Republicans took over. And that was one of the things that Republicans thought should be changed. Um, so we do not have straight ticket voting anymore. Yeah, I guess that's why I was interested because I was familiar, Bridget, with Texas. And I think they did, they did what West Virginia did. They removed straight ticket voting. Michigan did did too when it was only statutorily, you know, statutory right, um, which is why I believe the people behind the ballot initiative put it into a constitutional amendment, so mm -hmm. taking it out of the uh, hands of the legislature and, and, and I guess putting it in the constitution. So that it it's not a party flipping it back and forth, right? Exactly. I think that's the idea. I mean, you know, I honestly have no information about who straight ticket voting benefits. Right, um, right. So I really don't, I don't, I don't know anything about all that. It, yeah, it's not that we're saying we are implying one way or another. It's just, yeah, we don't want to use the political process, um, the voting process um, to benefit one or the other, either way. Well, um, so since you brought it up, I'm going to ask you about redistricting and um, jump to that question, if you don't mind, <laughs> that area, Bridget. So redistricting is something that's going on. And again, since we always focus on our states and um, when the census comes around, it's the role of the states and it's become really relevant in Arkansas and across the nation. And so I'm curious about how each of our um, state constitutions handles redistricting and who's assigned the primary role um, following census. And so Beth, um, how does West Virginia handle redistricting? Um, as you said, you know, the states have a really important role in redistricting, not only for our own legislative districts, but also for the federal congressional districts. It's a two-part answer. The states have the responsibility to set the districts for the congressional representatives who come from their states. And the reason I mention that is because it's relevant this year, because West Virginia, the number of House members from each state is set by a statistical formula that's set in federal law. So once the census was completed and that statistical formula um, was done, it was determined that West Virginia would lose one congressional seat. So we're down to two. And one of the things our legislature is now considering is what those two districts will look like. So that's part one. Then part two, in West Virginia, redistricting is a purely legislative manner. As a matter of convention, sort of past practice, it'll conclude in the year following the census. So it'll conclude 
um, in December, just in time for our filing in January for um, legislative races. And it's done in a special session. Our legislature only meets 60 days a year in the early part of the year from January roughly till March. And so they do this in a special session in the fall. Right now, actually, they started in June and they'll conclude in the middle of September, they're doing public hearings, not required by the constitution, but they are going around the state, that they being the legislative representatives, legislative leadership, and uh, doing essentially town hall meetings to get folks input on the matter of redistricting. So that's how it's happening in West Virginia. That's interesting. Um, so, and I was curious if we were going to be different state by state and it sounds like we are. So article eight of our state constitution provides that there's three votes um, for redistricting. So it's the governor, the secretary of state and the attorney general. So those three um, decide the redistricting. We are not impacted for our federal offices, so we didn't lose or, or gain a seat there. But it is certainly a big issue with our state legislature, and there are going to be a lot of the districts redrawn from our House and Senate seats um, for Arkansas. So that's going to be um, an issue. And so the same thing, they're going around and meeting, and it's going to impact um, We've had a lot of um, population shifts to Northwest Arkansas, which is, you think of it's Walmart and Tyson Foods in that area has grown and some of the rural areas have lost populations, but it's, it's within those three offices. For those of you not familiar with Arkansas, um, those three offices are all held by the same political party. That's, you know, an, an issue of, you know, concern for members of the other party. So anyway, um, so anyway, it applies to the 100 House members and the 35 Senate members. They have to file their report and how they're going to redraw it by February 1st. And then our filing ends March 1st. Um, and then it becomes final within 30 days unless someone files an original action, which the original action goes to the Arkansas Supreme Court. So it comes immediately to us if they want to challenge it. But the only challenge is if it was arbitrary or an abuse of discretion. So it's a very limited challenge, but that's how it works in Arkansas. So Bridget, um, you said that it sounds like it recently changed in Michigan. Yeah, um, it used to be like West Virginia that the legislature was responsible for redistricting. And um, it was not uncommon for disputes to end up in the Michigan Supreme Court. And then in 2018, a group of citizens collected signatures to put a petition on the ballot to um, change the way we do redistricting and send it to an independent commission. And the way the commission works, you know, by the language of the Constitution now is an equal number of Democrats and Republicans and independents um, serve on the commission. They take applications and then select randomly. It was actually done online. You could watch the random selection of who, whose names were picked out of the hat from those who applied. And uh, the legislature is now out of the process. And the court, it seems, is largely out. Um, I think there's a very, very, very limited role for the court if there are challenges to how the, how the commission does its business. The one uh, office that was left out of the constitutional language is the Court of Appeals. In Michigan, we have Court of Appeals districts that are drawn with the rest of the redistricting process every 10 years. Um, and the Court of Appeals was not included in that constitutional amendment. So the legislature will still have the responsibility for drawing those districts. Um, like West Virginia, Michigan will lose a federal congressional seat this time around. So 
uh, people are are watching the independent redistricting process with lots of interest. The, the commission is going around the state and hearing from the public and working on plans. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how it works first time through. I'm, cur- I'm curious it, that independent commission, um, if the other states have that or not, do you know if that was unique or? No, there are a number of states that have independent um, commissions, and I believe most of them arrived there the way Michigan did by by um, by citizen initiative. Arizona has one, I believe. California, and I, I, I think there are probably others. I don't know if they're structured the way Michigan's is exactly, but I think that they are largely born of the same concerns and interests uh, to take the process for drawing districts out of the hands of electeds and put it in the hands of the people. Yeah, and there there was um, some talk about a group trying to do something similar in Arkansas, but uh, it got stalled at some point, and I don't know where. So it may be something that's one of those national trends or, you know, that's occurring. Um, uh, the really interesting um, thing that I'll throw in just from West Virginia, and we talked about it in our very first episode, was that there's not a citizen initiative provision in our constitution for amending the constitution. So even if a citizens group wanted to do something like create an independent commission for redistricting, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing because they'd have to convince the legislature to change the constitution, which gives them the sole authority for putting forward um, constitutional amendments. So this is just a great demonstration of how what your constitution says matters as to what can be done in terms of what the public and the voters want, uh, as opposed to what the legislators want. Right. Um, And I guess you have to convince the legislature to share its power with, you know, (laughs) um, the people, in other words, in West Virginia. Well, so talking about state constitutions, um, the other thing that's been really a sort of hot topic in Arkansas is about the power um, given to the Supreme Courts in the Constitution. And I don't know if that's been an issue in your states as well. Um, Bridget, does is there a specific grant of power to Michigan in your Constitution? There is, although the, the language is um, fairly curt. It says the Supreme Court shall have general superintending control over all courts power to issue here and determine prerogative and remedial writs and appellate jurisdiction as provided by rules of the Supreme Court. So that leaves a lot of room for us to develop those rules about appellate jurisdiction. Um, The superintending control over all the courts is really a significant grant of power because it's the administrative oversight of all of the courts of the state. And as you've heard me say many times on this podcast and elsewhere, um, I I view our administrative oversight role as one of the ways in which we have the ability to affect the lives of of so many of our our neighbors uh, because it's it's really in trial courts where people go to get their justice business done or have a little justice business done to them. (laughs) So um, that administrative oversight, that superintending control is, is quite significant in my view. Well, in um, West Virginia, that's interesting, um, Bridget, that your power is described generally because ours is too. And it's clear that the judicial power is vested solely in the courts, for example, um, very 
broad language. But then the article goes on to explain a lot more about the specifics of those powers. And again, as you said, you know, there's two very different, at least two very different roles that a state Supreme Court plays. And one that we like to, that folks to know that we do is this administration. For example, in, in West Virginia, we have a unified court system. So the Supreme Court employs everyone who works in the judiciary. And that's in, that's straight out of our constitution. Then of course the constitution goes on and talks about our more traditional court powers, you know, the, the power to adjudicate things or to decide things and our power to not just decide the, the differences that people have in lawsuits that they appeal to us to decide, well, who's right, who's wrong, was the trial court correct? but also to sometimes correct things, either to make somebody do something that one side says that they're required to do or to stop doing something that uh, one side says that they should not uh, be doing. So in um, Arkansas, our judicial power, it was all redone in 2000. There was an amendment. um, It's called Amendment 80 to our constitution because um, judges were elected, um, it was a partisan election and they moved us to nonpartisan in 2000. And as part of that, they redid the judicial power completely. And so we have superintending power, we have that language like you have Bridget. And so that sort of gave us the the responsibility um, to make sure that um, the trial courts are operating um, in a manner that is really, you know, just and equitable and the access to everyone to the court system. But it's through that superintending power that we can sort of assign divisions and move judges around and and do some things to make sure that cases are running um, smoothly and if there's a backlog, you know, we can sort of move a judge in and, and sort of remedy that. So um, we use that for that quite a bit. So um, the other thing that I really want to talk about today, one sort of last topic um, is, which I have found fascinating, and maybe I'm just kind of nerdy geeky, um, is horizontal federalism. And I don't know if this has come up with all of you um, and Bridget, I'm really curious about whether how much it impacts you because you have this newer constitution in Michigan, uh, but for Arkansas. Um, but we've talked a lot in our podcast about how, and especially in our first episode last year, about how ch- states can choose to interpret the U.S. Constitution differently and provide more individual rights. But how horizontally we may have similar provisions in our constitution as other states and how we may choose to sort of interpret them differently because it's our state's constitution. Um, And so as an example that I think is, is unique is we have this provision in our Arkansas constitution that says the state shall never be made a defendant in her courts. And it was challenged um, back in 2017 um, about whether or not anyone could ever sue the state of Arkansas. And we looked at, and really Alabama was the only state that had the same language precisely pulled out in sort of our Bill of Rights and their constitution was around the same time as us, you know, from part of Reconstruction. And theirs is never means never. So in Alabama, you never can sue the state of Alabama. 
And with Arkansas, we have interpreted it to mean that way, except we sort of say if the state is acting illegally um, or a state, you know, actor, that you're not really acting as the state. So, um, you know, if you're violating someone's sort of constitutional rights, then you're not really acting as the state should be acting and you can sue, you know, for equal protection or that sort of thing. Um, but that was sort of an example of horizontal federalism um, and how we sort of looked at a similar provision that we interpreted a little bit different. So I'm curious if either of you have had that come up in your states. So Bridget, you having this newer constitution, does that come up in Michigan? Um, it's such an interesting question. Obviously, the, the more common inquiry is whether a particular Michigan constitutional provision that mirrors or corresponds to a federal constitutional provision should be interpreted in the same way. And that that is not an uncommon exercise that we, we engage in. Um, and I'm sure that's true for, for both of you and your courts um, as well. But there have been occasions, although not, not very many that I could put my finger on, where we've had to look at how other states have addressed a similar constitutional provision. It's, it's, I don't think I have found an example where Michigan's constitutional language is word for word the same as other um, constitutions, but you can tell they were developed around, around the same time when they use similar language and address similar issues. So for example, in 2018, when there, there were signatures to send the redistricting commission amendment to the ballot, there was litigation around whether that was actually appropriate as an amendment or whether instead it was an impermissible revision. And in that case, we looked at what other states had done and how they thought of their amendment slash revision processes. So Alaska in particular uh, was one we looked to um, and the parties did as well. So that was one example I came up with. Beth might have better ones. I don't know that I have better ones, but I have a recent case that was kind of interesting. As, as Bridget said, you know, it's a lot more common for us to look to federal constitution. And that's a lot of what the arguments, um, but we had a really interesting case that was interesting on one level to sort of the media and everybody because it was a political issue, but interesting to us because it had some really good legal issues in it. And that was a case that was brought by a member of the opposing party against the governor of West Virginia last year. Actually, it was, I think it was brought a little bit before last year, but it was, um, it came to us last year. And the legislator was asking the trial court to require the governor to comply with Article 7, Section 1 of our Constitution, which requires the governor to reside at the seat of government. So the governor kept his home a couple of hours away in, in um, West Virginia and commuted back and forth to the Capitol and made it fairly public that he was not living at the governor's mansion. And so the member of the opposing party sued him to make him live in Charleston. Um, all kinds of interesting political ramifications of that and posturing and all the things that happen legitimately in the executive and the legislative branches. But it came to us with the interesting question because the governor asked us to tell the court that it did not have the power to uh, enforce that section of the Constitution, that it was a separation of powers issue. So one of the questions we looked at is whether the governor's 
compliance with the reside provision of the Constitution was a discretionary or non-discretionary duty. Did the governor get to decide what reside meant or does the language of the Constitution and did the court get to dictate what the Constitution says? Um, so, for example, we looked to the state of Washington, which had taken up, a, you know, apparently, obviously nothing is, happens for the first time usually, and these reside provisions can be litigated. So Washington had looked at it. We, we took a look at that. And so that's one example of, you know, looking, because obviously the federal constitution would be of no concern to us because this is purely a state matter. Our state constitution says whether it's uh, officers need to live somewhere or not. And that's what we were taking up in this case. But then we got to the heart of the issue, which is what does it mean to reside? You know, what does it mean to reside at the seat of government? And of course, we looked back to all of the constitutional conventions and you know, what the debate was and all of that. But we also looked at the state of Maryland, which had similar litigation and a similar provision. So we, de we determined what reside meant. And then we had another syllabus point too, where we held that the duty of executive officers to reside at the seat of government is a mandatory non-discretionary duty for which a writ of mandamus may lie to require compliance. And so we denied the governor's request to stop the trial court and send it back to the trial court. Um, it was just a couple of months before the election. You know, the governor was up for uh, his second uh, term as governor, and we promptly denied his writ. We issued an opinion later, uh, a little later on, actually, after the election in order to keep it from being politicized. But we did, you know, our only sources of authority really uh, or other states. So that was kind of a long answer, Rhonda, but uh, it was an interesting case. Well, so um, as we wrap up this Constitution Day um, and episode one, um, we're going to wrap up with a lightning round. I think I'm going to go in order of um, Bridget, Beth, and then myself, if that's okay. And um, so I'm going to start with, do you have other podcasts that you listen to? And if so, what are they? I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I'll mention um, two in particular here. The, the Future Law Podcast, which is um, Mike Madison from Pitt Law School and uh, focusing on the future of the profession and interviewing sort of inter interviewing innovators and entrepreneurs and um, it's, a, I think, a, a great listen. And then Law Next, which is Bob Ambrosi's podcast, also on innovators and entrepreneurs in law. I guess you can see a theme in my listening. Um, I do listen to a lot of other law podcasts as well, but those are two that I would focus on. Um, I will, as, as Bridget said, I've listened to a few and I kind of dabble around and listen to different podcasts looking for interesting things. But two that I listen to, one is the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, which is my beloved Hillsdale College, uh, my alma mater in the state of Michigan. They have um, a podcast and it keeps me connected to what's going on on campus. Um, so I enjoy that. I don't listen to every single one. They put a lot of content out, but I, I try to keep up. And then, as you might imagine, um, I listened to a podcast called The Path to Wellbeing in Law, which is um, put together by the Institute for Wellbeing in Law. It's something that I care about. And so those are two. In another podcast, we need to discuss whether we listen at 1.0 or 1.5 or 2.0. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, so I um, listen. I listen to Dist. I 
I really like that um, about dissenting. And I know that, I mean, we, some of us um, went on that one. And then the other one that I really like that I've listened to for years is Grammar Girl, which is just a lot of fun. I don't know if you've ever listened to that, but it's short and they do quirky. Um, um, so they may do um, a dog theme one. They did an alcohol theme one, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, but um, they talk about um, how words um, developed and then they also sort of correct common grammar errors. And, but it's just, it's fun and it's short and, Anyway, that just tells you a lot about me probably right there. <laughs> so the other question um, is, are you an extrovert or introvert? I'm an introvert, which is really complicated in a statewide elected position. I mean, I feel like I'm an introvert who has learned extrovert skills so that I can use them when I need them, which is uh, common. Although um, the pandemic was, you know, a Allowed, allowed a lot more of my introverted habits to, to come to the fore. And so I am probably best described as an extrovert, um, but even though you would think that's a perfect personality for you know, a statewide elected official, um, sometimes you have to check yourself, particularly in our jobs, when you, you know, I tend to um, decide first and think later um, sometimes, and I, I find that uh, sometimes I need to slow down a little bit and try to be a little bit more introverted. So I am an introvert and it's always very hard um, during campaign season, you know, when you're out on the trail um, to, I need those moments to come back home and sort of recharge my introvert self. <laughs> um, so like Bridget, I've, I've learned to adapt um, in, in the extrovert world, but um, I, Every time I've tested, I, I just blow the chart off the introvert. Um, so and maybe that's, you know, um, we're just very, adapt we adapt. And Beth, you had to adapt it well to the introvert because you have to spend so much time by yourself um, to do your job. So um, I think we've all adapted well. So the other question I have is I saw um, Beth that you posted a 90s throwback picture. Uh, you tweeted it. And so it started me thinking, what was the first concert um, that you ever attended? It's such a fun question. Um, the first concert I attended, I attended with my dad and my two siblings, and it was the Jackson 5 reunion tour at the Meadowlands in New Jersey. And my dad literally went days before with a folding chair to wait to buy tickets for us because we were so into the Jackson 5. And things that we dressed up in of which there are still photos of are unbelievable. My brother in particular was young. I think he was like in third grade or so, and he could moonwalk. He was like obsessed with Michael Jackson and he had a full on um, beat it costume, like that red leather jacket, the whole, the rolled up pants. And my sister has that photo and she blew it up to like a life-size version, which she's waiting to, you know, use against him on like the late show one day. So Jackson five reunion tour. And mine uh, goes a little further back than the 90s, I will say. Um, and it, it, it is probably um, uh, an age indicator, but my first concert was a Bee Gees concert uh, at the Cleveland Cause at the old Cleveland Coliseum uh, in, in Northeast Ohio. And it was 
Um, it was whatever the album was, it had tragedy on it. So it wasn't the early, it was a little after Saturday Night Fever, um, although that was certainly featured um, a lot of fun. And I went with my mother. Well, and I'll say that um, my first concert was not 90s either. <laughs> so I think that we're all in the same generation. Um, so my first, um, I think, concert concert in a big theme was Rick Springfield, um, you know, and doing Jesse's Girl. Um, and But then when both of you mentioned about um, your family and um, it wasn't a true, true concert, but it was kind of, he appeared um, as I saw Roy Orbison, um, I think with my parents. Um, so I think that one at the time felt like torture to me um, when they dragged me to that. But now looking back, it was such a cool moment that I experienced. But um, anyway, so the good old days. Um, so yeah, Jesse's girl. <laughs> but the other thing is I'm curious because um, I will tell you, um, we have a pretty fun one in where I live. But do any of your cities um, where you live or anything have an annual festival? Because sometimes you get really interesting answers here. Ann Arbor has so many annual festivals. It's hard for me to, to pick the, the Ann Arbor Art Fair is a very well-known um, art fair and the, and the Folk Festival is a wonderful music festival. But I think the, the, the festival that Ann Arbor is probably most known for is the Hash Bash, which is or was traditionally held every April um, uh, and had you know speeches and music and some civil disobedience uh, around reforming marijuana laws. I don't know if that's still relevant now that we have the constitutional amendment making recreational use of marijuana legal. Um, but the first Haspash was held on Saturday, April 1st in 1972. And it was in response to a very recent decision from the Michigan Supreme Court declaring unconstitutional um, a statute used to convict um, the activist John Sinclair for possession of, of, of two marijuana cigarettes. I think that's what they were called in the opinion. Hashbash, that's the one we're famous for. Hey, you asked. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I can't even get close to that one. Um, but the nice thing we have in West Virginia is a beautiful capital complex. Anyone who drives through Charleston, West Virginia on the interstate knows um, we have a beautiful gold dome and just a beautiful grounds. And so uh, it's used a lot. And one of my favorite things it's used for is the Vandalia Festival. It's called in, um, on Memorial Day weekend every year. And during that festival, it is a celebration of all of West Virginians uh, Appalachian heritage. So all things Appalachia from bluegrass music to arts and crafts to food. Uh, all on the Capitol grounds, all for the whole weekend. Um, Vandalia actually is um, the name of uh, one of one of the proposed finalist names for our state. Uh, they were just going to call it Vandalia instead of West Virginia. West Virginia um, uh, eventually won out, but we still have the Vandalia Festival every year to remind us uh, of our heritage, and it's it's great fun and very popular. Uh, and a cool thing. Um, so Bridget, I've got um, a competition for you. So um, we have in Conway, um, it's called Toad Suck Days. It's the first um, weekend in May. And um, it's because way back when the barges and everything came down the Arkansas River, 
um, and we sit, we had a dam, but the barges would get backlogged or the river would like not be high enough to float and they would stop and have to sort of be stuck. And apparently they would stock the side at a tavern and they would swell up like toads from excessive drinking. And um, so it's called now the Toad Suck um, Park and it's Toad Suck Days. <laughs> and it's Days, D-A-Z-E, which is interesting because we're in a dry county. So go figure, but um, it's a family fest. Um, so even though the name does not um, give you that connotation, but people actually just call me all the time to buy the t-shirts because um, the t-shirts are always a lot of fun with the toads on them and whatnot. And um, so that's what Conway um, is known for, Toad Suck Days. And it's a huge festival that everybody comes in for, um, but very family friendly. Um, so anyway, that wraps up the start of season two, episode one. And I'm glad to be back with both of you. And I know we're sad that we don't have um, Eva with us this season, but um, I know we have lots of plans to bring in other justices and other people along with us. Um, and so, Thank you all for listening to Lady Justice Women of the Court. And whether this is your first time or we're welcoming you back from season one, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. And we'd love to hear from you, um, especially if you have any suggestions for future episodes. Visit ladyjusticepod.com to access previous episodes, find links to social media, and leave us a voicemail with a question or comment. You just might hear yourself in future episodes. The opinions expressed on this program are the justices alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Until next time.